everybody. Good to see you here again tonight for week two of apologetics. And uh, I want to jump right into it if we can, um, because I want to certainly finish the New Testament reliability section tonight. And I also, uh, time willing, uh, I would like to show you uh, a chiastic pattern at work. We brought up chiastic patterns last week. I'd like to show you one uh, in action so you can see the beauty of them. You can see how there's no explanation for them except for inspiration. Um, so, uh, and it may, we may run past 7.30 or so with it. So feel free, if you uh, have a date at 7.30, go ahead and attend to your date. If you can stay with us, that'd be great too. So uh, let's pray and we'll get right into it. Our Father in heaven, uh, we praise you, Lord. We celebrate you, Lord. The uh, King of the universe is our Father, and we thank you for that. And uh, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you for his mediation uh, for us. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that's with us and teaching us truth all the time and opening our eyes, Lord, and bringing light to our souls and, and, um, and life everlasting. So Lord, we thank you and praise you uh, for these things. And we pray that we can honor you tonight, Lord, with this study and that um, the preparation for it just kind of weeded out all untruth and we can just say what's true and real so that uh, we can see, Lord, that you have indeed revealed yourself to us. So we love you and, and we serve you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, folks. Um, in, in the way of review, real quick, um, we're starting six criterion of... Um, what makes the New Testament reliable? And um, when I say what makes it reliable, what I really mean in my heart is what makes it the single most reliable ancient manuscript on planet Earth. Second to none, not even a close second. And we saw that yesterday, I'm sorry, we saw that last week uh, in the first two criterion, which were the, how accurate are the copies? <clears throat> how accurate are the copies that have been passed down to us? So I hope you all, when I say that, you're thinking of, we have over 25,000 copies compared to second place Homer's Iliad with 642. They're copied at 99.5% accuracy compared to second place like the Mahabharata and books like that that are 95% accurate. So not only do we have the most copies to compare with each other, but we also have them copied at the highest rates of accuracy. <clears throat> and the one half of 1% that's not accurate has nothing to do with doctrine or anything like that. It's mostly pronouns where one version will say Jesus said this and another version will say he said this. And we know that one of those is a mistake. Either the original writer either wrote Jesus or he wrote he. So that's a mistake, but that doesn't change any of the truths of the story. And that's how those work. Uh, the second criterion we dealt with was eyewitness testimony. <laughs> Excuse me. And we simply looked at um, the fact that we have uh, nine authors uh, to the New Testament uh, written on different continents, um, all of them claiming eyewitness uh, testimony to the events of Jesus's life. We call this internal evidence. Uh, we look inside the Bible to see if the Bible claims its own reliability. And we saw things like uh, John saying, that which we have seen with our eyes, we have heard with our ears, we have held with our hands, that's what we're proclaiming to you concerning the word of life. So um, they're claiming not 
that they're just handed down stories over many decades, but they're claiming we were there, we saw, we heard ourselves. The very thing our courts of law look for in being able to determine truth. They look for eyewitness testimony. Um, and it has to be credible eyewitness testimony. So what we're gonna look at tonight, we're gonna try to get through the last four of these um, criterion, and I'm gonna name them real quick so you know where we're going, and hopefully you see in the notes uh, where we're going. I know I created some confusion on those notes. I apologize for that. And, uh, but you'll see the third criterion is multiple eyewitnesses. So unlike the Quran of Islam, which is just Muhammad saying what he believes to be true, um, and there's nobody else that shares his experiences, the New Testament is written up of multiple eyewitnesses. But it's not just these multiple eyewitnesses of the Bible. We also have eyewitnesses that are external to the Bible, that tell the same stories as the Bible. So <clears throat> the first one I want to talk about is Josephus. Josephus is a first century Jewish historian who writes in his book called Antiquities of the Jews. This is one of his quotes. He says, at this time, which he refers to as the time of Pilate, when Pilate was in charge of this area, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jew. And he's not writing theologically or evangelically. He's writing historically. His lone motivation is to record history. So you see this non-follower of Jesus whose only job is writing history report on Jesus. And he also reports on Jesus' brother James. Um, he writes about his death. He wrote, Festus was now dead, and Albinus was up, but upon the road. So Ananias the high priest assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So there's another external evidence, external testimony from a uh, non-Christian historian on not just Jesus, but his brother James. In addition to Josephus, other non-Christian sources who mention Jesus in ways that support the New Testament accounts of him are Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, Pliny the Younger, who's a Roman politician, Phlegon, who's a freed slave, that we have some correspondence from him, and he mentions Jesus the way the New Testament does, Thallus, who was a first century historian, Suetonius, who is a Roman historian, Lucian, who is a Greek writer, Celsus, who is a Roman philosopher, Mara Bar Serapion, who is a private citizen writing a letter to his son, and then we have the Jewish Talmud, which is very anti-Christian, yet mentions Jesus accurately within its pages. All of these writings were written within the 150 year, first 150 years of the life of Jesus. So it's very early testimony, it's multiple eyewitness, and it's also both uh, Christians and non-Christians writing the same thing. Now here's a very interesting fact. 
Uh, by contrast, over the same 150 years, I may have mentioned this last week, but I want you to hear this. Over the same 150 years, there are nine non-Christian sources who mention Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor at the time and the most famous man on the planet. He was the guy in charge of planet Earth during Jesus' day. And there are nine non-Christian sources that mention him. If we only talk about non-Christian sources, we have 10 that mention Jesus, a homeless peasant preacher from Galilee. So how does this itinerant preacher get mentioned in more non-Christian literature than the ruler of the world of his day? That shows you the significance the world saw of Jesus Christ. If we include Christian literature, then Jesus beats Tiberius Caesar 43 to 10 in the first 150 years of the church, 43 to 10. The 10th book for Caesar was our Bible. He went from nine to 10 because he's mentioned in our Bible. Uh, but Jesus beats him in non-Christian literature, 10 to nine, and in Christian literature, uh, 43 to 10. And some of those uh, non-Christian books are anti-Christian. They have an agenda against Christ yet mention him accurately there. So what I'm gonna give you now is, here's a list of things that if you take all of these non-Christian sources, here's what the non-Christian sources agree upon about Jesus. The non-Christian sources agree that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. So, so everybody's in agreement on that. That he lived a virtuous life. So there's no indications that he was a scammer, a liar, anything like that. They all agree, Christian and non-Christian alike, that he lived a virtuous life. That he was a miracle worker. Now that says something, because as the people in the Bible say, no, God doesn't listen to sinners and perform miracles through sinners. That's what the blind man that was healed said. So that says something about the character of Jesus if they believe him to be a miracle worker. He also had a brother named James. They all agree to that as well. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. So all writers agree that he was acclaimed to be the Messiah, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, all points of agreement. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. So now we're narrowing it to actual date, an actual date that this happened, that all people agree upon. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. Now consider that. All literature, Jewish, I'm sorry, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that darkness occurred in the middle of the day, the day Jesus died. That's a supernatural phenomenon that non-Christian sources testify to. They also all testify to the fact that his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. Now, it doesn't say they saw him risen from the dead, these non-Christian sources, but that his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. And that's significant because of what we know those men went through to tell the story of this resurrection. A 10th point is that his disciples were willing to die for this belief. All sources, Christian and non-Christian alike agree to that. An 11th point is that Christianity rapidly spread as far as Rome. So immediately upon the pronouncement of Christianity within uh, virtually no time, maybe a decade or so, it's already reached the capital of the world, Rome. And a 12th point is, his disciples denied the Roman gods and worshiped Jesus as God instead, despite all the implications of discomfort, punishment, and death that that would bring. All right, so that's um, some more external evidence is this. 
What this tells us is that any theory that Jesus never existed is completely void of any merit whatsoever. When I have people say to me, I don't even think Jesus existed, I, I, I don't even engage in that conversation. I tell them you really need to do some research before you engage in conversations like this because there is no anti-Christian scholar that would ever say he never existed. Anybody who studied any part of this story is beyond arguing that he never existed. So it's just nonsense to say that. How could non-Christian writers collectively reveal a storyline congruent with the New Testament if Jesus never existed? How could non-Christians write about a fictional character the same way that the New Testament writers write about him if the New Testament writers invented him? Uh, so certainly that is not something that's feasible. So even non-Christian sources affirm the New Testament. Though they don't affirm the resurrection, they do affirm that the apostles believed in the resurrection and were willing to die for that belief. The existence of God and the possibility of miracles is firmly established now through Revelation. And I don't mean the book of Revelation. What I mean is they, all these Christian and non-Christian sources agree that he was a miracle worker. If Jesus, if it's established that he's a miracle worker, then that says something about we should listen to what his claim is about himself. If somebody showed up to you and healed the blind and the lame and all this and said he's doing it because he's the son of God, you'd either have a wacko magician on your hand or you'd have the son of God on your hand. So that's why C.S. Lewis says we shouldn't talk about any nonsense about Jesus just being a good man or a good teacher. Jesus doesn't allow that choice to be made. He either was and is the Christ or he's a liar or a madman or something worse. He simply couldn't just be a good moral teacher, which is where so many people land in their opinion of Jesus today. Just a good moral man, good teacher. Probably do yourself well if you followed his teachings. You probably have a good life if you did so. But Jesus never allowed for that possibility. Once he says he's God and that you have no chance of heaven unless you come through him, now he's either a tremendous demonic liar or he is the son of God and our Messiah. All right. Now, Clark H. Pinnock, uh, Mike, if you want to show them slide 250, slide 250, I'm going to, uh, you can read along with me this quote from a professor emeritus of systematic theology at McMaster Divinity College. Um, should be up in a second. There we go. Uh, he says, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. An honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on a, an irrational or an anti-supernatural bias. Listen. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity. If you're skeptical about it, you're basing your skepticism on irrationality or you have an anti-supernatural bias. You just don't believe that a miracle is possible. So um, I think that's wonderful. Now, again, for multiple eyewitnesses, this is what we call corroborating evidence. Multiple lines of evidence coming together. 
So as I said before, what we have in the New Testament is, is testimony, not from one book, like the Quran, but from 27 books, not written by one person, but by nine authors who were either eyewitness or directly related to an eyewitness. Like Mark was directly attached to Peter, Luke was directly attached to Paul. This makes the testimony of the New Testament beyond a reasonable doubt as any court in the land considers multiple accounts of the same story told by credible witnesses under the most extreme circumstances without ever changing their story, though they are located in different countries and different continents, making them incapable of collusion. While all of them are willing to die for their testimony, literally, we could not ask for more. So, are, do we have accurate copies? Yes, we have the most accurate ancient manuscript in the world. Do we have eyewitness testimony um, from in, inside the Bible? Yes. Do we have multiple eyewitnesses outside the Bible? Yes. So now the next consideration, criterion four is, are these people trustworthy? Are the eyewitnesses trustworthy? So let's take a look at that. Ten reasons why we know the New Testament writers told the truth. Here's 10 wonderful considerations if you're determining did these men lie or did they tell the truth. Reason number one, they included embarrassing details about themselves. They often write about how dim-witted they were or how uncaring they were. They, uh, they write about how they get rebuked by Jesus often and end up being cowardly at times and doubtful about the message Jesus is giving them. Why would you make that stuff up about yourself? If you're writing a false story and you're including yourself in the story, why would you embarrass yourself multiple times throughout that story unless it's just the truth? Second reason we can believe that the, they told the truth. They include very difficult sayings of Jesus. These include sayings that may People call Jesus out of his mind or a deceiver. If you're making up the story, why would you say things that are so difficult? You, you, you attribute things to Jesus that are so difficult that you mention that he's called a deceiver for that. And he's out of his mind for that. He turns people off from his teachings. In John chapter 6, when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no, no part in me. He loses followers through that. So why make something like that up? Why make something very derogatory towards your own case there? He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He's called a madman. He's called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's called cursed by God, since all who hang on trees are cursed by God. These are things that we don't make up about a person we're trying to promote. And uh, I'll give you some verses you can write down to look up these passages I'm talking about. I referred here to Mark 3.21. I referred here to John 7, 12, Matthew eleven nineteen, John 10, 20, Luke 7, 34, and Galatians 3, 13. All right. Third reason we know these guys told the truth. They include demanding sayings of Jesus. To me, what shows me that these guys aren't making these things up because they have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount saying this. They'll quote Jesus by saying, you have heard it said of old, meaning the Old Testament, 
do not commit adultery. But the next five words are so serious that they are going to run the charge of blasphemy for, for quoting Jesus this way if it's not true. Jesus will say, you heard it said of old, do not commit adultery, but I say to you. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I know Moses gave you the law from Mount Sinai, and that was directly from Yahweh to Moses himself. I know what that said, but here's what I say to you. You hear the authority in that? He's saying, I have more authority than the law of Moses. So you've heard it said of old, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. You've heard it said of old, do not commit murder, but I say to you, that if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of his murder. So Jesus claimed tremendous authority, the authority of God himself. When Jesus teaches to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to be perfect as God is perfect, to not store up for yourself earthly treasures, to pray for your enemies, that it's better to give than to receive, all these went against the best and immediate interests of the writers. They are making their own interests uh, secondary when they are promoting this Jesus this way. Fourth reason we can believe that they are telling the truth. They intentionally distinguish Jesus's words from their own words. If the apostles were making up the story, why didn't they solve theological issues of their day by attributing answers to Jesus that, that would have solved these issues, like circumcision issues, or how to follow the law of Moses issues. Why, why don't they attribute those issues when they say we don't have to be circumcised anymore? Why don't they quote Jesus on that? They don't leave that to the authority of Jesus. It's Paul, mostly Paul's understanding of how the theology works out that we get that from. But they, they, they do not, in, in a matter of just saying, because Jesus said so, they don't attribute difficult sayings to Jesus. Uh, or theological answers to Jesus, which would have uh, given them the, the grounds to say that settles the matter, but they didn't do that. Fifth reason is they include details of the resurrection that are easily dismissed if they're not true or hurt the believability of the resurrection. For example, the fact that they say that Joseph of Arimathea, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, helped in the burial of Jesus is very easily dismissed if not true. Anybody could check with the Sanhedrin about Joseph of Arimathea to see if he helped in the burial of Jesus and gave up his tomb for him. So uh, easily dismissed if not true. The fact that they have women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection is unheard of in that day or any time prior. Uh, women were just not listened to in courts of law or as eyewitnesses even if they were the only eyewitness to an event. So when the apostles want to claim that the most fantastic and important event of human history happened, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, the fact that they say John and Peter ran from the tomb and did not witness it, but Mary stayed behind and did, would not help their case at all. The only reason why you would do that is if it's simply the truth that you're telling. And Mary also was a former demoniac. She had the least amount of credibility. You at least would give it to, to Jesus's mother, Mary, that great moment, if you're making it up. But they give it to a former demoniac woman, and it's marvelous and it's wonderful. 
Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 15 tell us priests were converted to belief in Jesus Christ, easily dismissed and overcome if not true. So what was the Jews' explanation of the resurrection? Well, in Matthew 28, we see that Pilate told the guards, you're to say that the apostles stole the body while you slept. And Matthew says at the time of his writing his gospel, his readers already knew about this cover-up, yet no Jewish writing contradicts it. There's no Jewish writing that we have from Josephus or anybody that contradicts that that was a story that was made up to cover the tracks of Pilate and the guards. Uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, who lived between 150 and 200 AD, said that that rumor still existed in their day, as a matter of fact. The sixth reason we find the apostles' testimony to be trustworthy. They write of over 30 confirmed historical people in their writings. So there's over 30 people included in their writings that have been confirmed through history and archaeology. They could not have gotten away with writing outright lies about Caiaphas, Pilate, Festus, Felix, and the entire Herodian bloodline, and falsely implicating them in events that never occurred. And many of these people were the enemies of Jesus, which would have had tremendous motivation for disproving these stories since they were written during their lifetimes. This serves as powerful testimony for the truth of our Bible. Seventh reason we believe these guys told the truth, because they include divergent details. In other words, nobody accuses them of collusion. They don't look at these different writings and say, clearly you guys got together, got your story together, and wrote it out very similarly. There's no accusations of that. You read the four Gospels, you see how divergent the details are. The Gospel writers provide different details to the same story that they're telling. Critics try to say that this, this is contradictory but none of their stories contradict. They actually complement one another. They are the perfect combination of uniformity and divergence that one would expect from multiple sources telling the same story where no collusion exists. They are the perfect combination of uniformity and divergence one would expect from multiple sources telling the same story where no collusion exists. An eighth reason we can believe these guys were trustworthy. The New Testament writers challenged their readers to verify their facts. They challenged the readers to verify their facts. First Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul starts chronologically telling you who the, resur resur the resurrected Christ appeared to, he says, he concludes by saying he appeared to over 500 people at once, many who are still alive today. So Paul's challenging his readers, go and ask them. They were alive, they saw the risen Christ themselves, hundreds of them. Acts 26, 26, Paul says, these miracles were not done in a corner. He's appealing to the governor of the land. And he's saying, you yourselves know these things because they were not done in a corner. He said, these were public displays for people. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul says, these signs and wonders and miracles were done in your midst. So he's telling, the, he's telling the Corinthian church, you had signs and wonders and miracles done in your very midst. You can't say that to people that never saw signs and wonders and miracles. A ninth reason we believe these gentlemen told the truth, that they're, this one's probably my favorite one, 
their descriptions of the resurrection, which is the climax of their story, are written very blandly, very vanilla-like. The gospel writers record the highlight of their lives, the resurrection, with bland storytelling. Their lack of embellishment or overstatement displays their faithfulness to the historical record. They give absolutely no theological implications of the resurrection, just simple historical narrative. So they don't take advantage of making up the story of their friend who rose from the dead and then tell you, because of this, you'll also rise from the dead. Because of this, you should follow him. They don't do any of that. They simply tell a story the way I think all of us wish desperately our reporters today would do. They do not embellish. They do not have an agenda attached or theological implications attached. They simply said, he rose and we saw it. That's it. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it, he said, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wanted to tell stories whose import was Jesus is risen, therefore you will too, they've done a remarkably bad job of it. The same is true for the other 35 miracles recorded in the Bible. They are given to us as from reporters, not as from preachers. The miracles of the Bible are given to us as from reporters, not as from preachers. Simply, how many of you used to watch Dragnet back in the day? Okay, what do they always say? Just the facts, ma'am, right? That's your New Testament, folks. Just the facts. Certainly your Gospels. Just the facts. That's all you're getting. All right. And the tenth and final reason, and to me, if I can only present one reason to convince an unbeliever, this is it. The apostles abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices and adopted new ones and never denied their testimony under persecution or threat of death. Now think about this. These were devout Jewish men. The apostles were devout Jewish men who were raised by their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way back to Moses to do animal sacrifice. And they rise up and say, no more. They went from animal sacrifice to animal sacrifice being unnecessary. They went from the law of Moses being binding, binding on their life to it being non-binding on their life. They went from strict monotheism to Trinitarianism. You understand the implications of blasphemy they were risking based on Jewish thought of the day. They went from Sabbath keeping on Saturday to worshiping God on Sunday. What can motivate these men to leave the Sabbath day to worship and move it to a new day. Only the power of the resurrection could do that. They went from believing in a conquering Messiah to now a sacrificial Messiah. They went from circumcision to replacing with baptism and communion. Extreme religious changes and people who hadn't changed their religion in thousands of years. And these fishermen and tax collectors and um, just changed their whole uh, sacred way of following God uh, from Friday to Sunday. Everything changed for them. Now, many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson. He was implicated in the Watergate scandal many years ago. 
served time in prison, came to Jesus Christ in prison, and has been do, started prison ministry in our country the way that we know it to be today. Here's what Chuck Colson wrote about the trustworthiness of the apostles as somebody who was involved with cover-ups and lies at the highest of levels. He said, concerning the apostles' willingness to hold on to their story despite persecution and death, Chuck Colson, who was found guilty in the Watergate scandal and served time in prison, wrote this. Uh, Mike, I'll wait for you. It's slide 267. 267. I want you guys to read this with me. So Chuck Colson implicated in the Watergate scandal wrote this. He says, Watergate involved a conspiracy to, to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president, president about what was really going on. Just two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, can only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president, were all that they were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but they were facing beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their own dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. That is remarkable testimony. And to me, the biggest threat for you appreciating that testimony is simply that you hear it too much. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. We can't do that. We got to keep this fresh in our hearts and minds. You had men who went through living hell to get this story passed on to you and passed on to me. And the fact that this story has survived 2,000 years and has crossed every ocean on the planet to get to us is because of these men. And it's remarkable. All right. So that goes towards the trustworthiness of the apostles. Now we're on our fifth criterion out of six, and that's enemy attestation. And I kind of gave this one away a little earlier, but uh, let me point out to you as far as enemy attestation, uh, believe it or not, the first enemy I want to bring up is Saul of Tarsus. Now, who did he become? The apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus was a vehement enemy of Christianity. He was the most famous guy in the day who led the charge to arrest and even bring to execution anybody who followed Jesus Christ. And then he went to Damascus. And in one afternoon, before he ever got to his destination, he became what I consider to be the most effective, powerful apostle of them all. How do you explain that life change in one afternoon? Well, Who's the most credible in explaining that life change? Paul. When Paul explains that life change, he says it this way. Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Simple. Jesus appeared to me and his life dramatically changed. Jesus' enemy became his friend. 
Even Jesus' brother James, who refused to believe in him, even taunted him in the Gospels about making himself known if he's really the Christ and so forth, becomes the first leader of the Jerusalem church and one of the very first martyrs of the Christian church. He's the first of the 12 apostles to be killed, besides Judas killing himself. So uh, that, that became Jesus' brother James, went from enemy to friend. I'd also bring up whether it's uh, one gospel says the Pharisees, one says the Sanhedrin, which the Pharisees are a member of, and one just says the multitude all accused Jesus of working his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, rather than by God himself. So what, how is that enemy attestation to who he actually is? Because what couldn't they deny? They couldn't deny that he was a miracle worker. They tr all they could do was try to say where the power came from. It was coming from Satan's side, not from God's side. But what was unmistakable to all? That this man has raised the dead. This man has healed the blind. This man has made the lame to walk. He's made the lepers clean. And uh, nobody could deny, not even his enemies. I mentioned to you already Josephus. Although not an enemy like we think of enemies, he was not somebody that received Jesus or followed Jesus. Um, here's another quote from him. Um, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. And wouldn't Joseph, Josephus marvel that they're not extinct to this day either, are they? Now, the sixth and final criterion for why these guys are trustworthy is that they include embarrassing details of themselves. And although there are many, and I can just refer you to Peter's life, pretty much, Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth and getting rebuked and things like that. I'll just point you to John chapter 16, verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus's final speech to his 12 before he goes to his death. And they, they give this confession. Now we know that you have come forth from God. And they give this great confession. Hey, now we believe you. Now we know you came from God. And Jesus answered them. He says, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. And yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Now, why would you write that about yourself if it wasn't true? Why would you write about yourself that right when you confess faith, the guy that you're making up as the hero says to you, really? Because you're going to blow it big time, worse than you ever had, and that's going to come later tonight. Okay? We just don't see people making up stories like this at all. All right. So they include embarrassing details of themselves as well. Hey, that went time-wise pretty well because I feel good about trying to present this chiastic pattern to you guys now. Okay? So... Um, that will conclude um, the first major topic of our eight weeks together, which is the reliability of the New Testament. I pray that you feel more confident than you ever have that when you read your New Testament, um, nobody else reads any other ancient manuscript with the certainty of the, 
of the stories that you can read the certainty of your stories with. So hopefully you feel that way. And this is why I hate online because I can't get much feedback from you uh, right now. But uh, if you stay tuned in, then I'll, I'll believe that you, you were helped by it. If you start disappearing on me, then I'll take that as your message as well. All right, chiastic patterns. This is a chiastic pattern. What I mean by that is you can see that it looks like a pyramid, sort of. Um, so what I have here are the seven angels of Revelation. If you want to join me in your Bible, we're going to spend uh, the most time in Revelation chapter nine, 19. No, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter, yeah, 19. So you can go there if you'd like in your Bible. But um, as I said last week, chiastic patterns are patterns, there's hundreds of them in Scripture. And they're written in such a way that you have um, stories that have details, uh, X amount of details in them, and the center detail is the major one that's really showing us something here. Okay? Now, Revelation 19 is where we'll spend most of our time, but we'll also be in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, and that's where I'll begin if you want to join me there. So, <clears throat> in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, and then we'll go to Revelation 19. Because Jesus has a fascinating conversation with Nathaniel here and makes a promise to Nathaniel that most people think that Jesus never kept it. And if Jesus ever made a promise that he doesn't keep, then he's not perfect and there he doesn't qualify to be our Messiah. So it's serious business that we're talking about here. So in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, we read this. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now, know this. There's going to be a lot of Jacob references in this story. Here's the first one. We're used to hearing Israel and Israelite because that's the common language we use. But what you have to remember is who was Israel? Israel was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when you say to a first century Jew, an Israelite, they hear it just as easily as a Jacobite. It's a, it's a reference to Jacob. And you'll see these references keep coming up. Who was known as the deceiver besides Satan in the Bible? Who was known as the deceiver in the Old Testament? Jacob. Jacob deceived his, his brother out of his birthright. So Jesus is clearly making a Jacob reference when he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel asked him, How do you know me? And it's important that he said, how do you know me? Because if he didn't have any idea what Jesus was getting at, he would say, um, you don't know me. That's what you say to somebody that gets something about you totally wrong. You don't know me. But Nathaniel knows Jesus is on to something. So he says, how? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? He just saw him under a fig tree. 
But watch what it does to Nathanael. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now realize calling a man the son of God is blasphemous with punishment, including death for that blasphemy. But Nathanael is very bold in saying it because he's become very convinced of it. But you got to say, how? What was so convincing about being under a fig tree? Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now those are Jacob references also. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is going to meet his brother Esau, who the last time he saw him, Esau wanted to kill him. So Jacob goes to sleep in a city called Luz, L-U-Z. And the Bible says he takes a stone, he puts his head on that stone, he falls asleep and he has a dream. And in his dream, he saw a ladder extending from earth to heaven and God was at the top of that ladder. And he saw angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. And Jacob was so overwhelmed with this dream that when he woke up, he renamed the place from Luz, he now called it Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, when Jesus says to Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree, and Nathanael says, how do you know me? Or Nathanael says, um, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus makes him a promise and says, you'll see greater things than these. You'll see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So again, he's referring to Jacob. You see, just like Jacob had a vision of a ladder going from heaven to earth and angels of God ascending and descending on it and God at the top of it, he says, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending, but not on a ladder. He says, you'll see it on the son of man. They'll be ascending and descending upon me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, if I brought you a few verses earlier, you would see that they brought Peter to Jesus for the first time. And the first time Jesus sees Peter, he says, you are no, you, uh, your name is Simon, now your name is Cephas. And the Bible tells you Cephas means stone. So what was our first detail of Jacob's story? He took a stone and went to sleep on it and had the dream. So now Jesus takes his stone and it's Peter. And now that he has the stone, what does he tell Nathaniel? You'll have a dream of angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what is Jesus doing in John chapter 1 as he begins his ministry? He's creating a new Bethel, a new house of God, because he is God and he's there. So this is the new Bethel that he's creating. Peter's the stone, and Nathaniel's going to get the, the vision of this. Now, when will we see this vision? Jesus said, you'll see this vision when, the when you see the heavens open. So that's our literary cue to see the fulfillment of the vision is when we see the heavens open. Now, most of you tuned in tonight can probably say at some point in your life, you've read the entire Gospel of John, and some, a lot of you, I'm sure, could say you've done it multiple times. And if you have, you're probably saying to yourself, I don't remember seeing the heavens open and any angels of God ascending and descending on Jesus. That's because it's not fulfilled in the Gospel of John. It's fulfilled in the book of Revelation, who's written by the same author, John. And I want you to know that John and Revelation should be read as one book. 
When we separate those two books, we think they're independent of each other, but they're not. They're always pointing to each other. And I'm going to give you a quick example. So if you can keep the mindset of the angels of God are going to be ascending and descending on Jesus, let me give you an example of how Revelation and John speak to each other real quick. A lot of you are familiar with John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. Now, Jesus gets accused of something at this wedding feast that he doesn't defend himself over. He gets accused of violating the wedding custom. They have a wedding custom that you give the good wine first when people can tell, and then you give the bad wine last when they don't care anymore how it tastes. And Jesus gives the best wine last, the water that he changed to wine. They said, this is the best wine. You violated the wedding custom. And he doesn't defend himself. But he doesn't defend himself because he's not done making wine yet. In Revelation 19 that we're going to read, you'll see that God is treading out the wine press of his fierce wrath and anger. It's the last judgment at his second coming. That's the bad wine. Jesus did save the bad wine for last. It's the final judgment where he's treading out the winepress of God's fierce wrath. So to understand John 2, you have to understand Revelation 19. And believe it or not, those are chiastically connected. That's why I say you got to read John and Revelation together. Because John 2 is at the same point of the beginning of John's gospel as Revelation 19 is the end of Revelation. They're same distance apart from beginning to end. So they're chiastically connected. All right. Now that you're all confused, let me move on to the really confusing stuff. All right, here we go. Back to your chart. Jesus made a promise to Nathaniel saying, you will see heaven open, angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's not in John's gospel, it's in Revelation. So let's look at verse 11 of Revelation 19. There we read. Now I saw heaven open. There's our literary cue, correct? Now we see heaven open. Now, before I read any further, I want you to look at your chart because you'll see on your left-hand side of your chart, we have angel one, angel two, and angel three. You start at the bottom left, there's angel one. Above him is angel two, above him is angel three. If you notice the verses that they are in, they are going right in order. So where do we see the first angel of Revelation? It's chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, and also verse 8. Where do we see the second angel? Revelation 18, verses 1 through 3. Where do we see the third angel? Revelation 18, 21. You see how we're progressing through Revelation in order. Fourth angel is Revelation 19, 11. The fifth angel is Revelation 19, 17. The sixth angel, Revelation 20. Seventh angel, Revelation 21. So they're going right in order. Now, here's how a chiastic pattern works. You see that I have parallel angel one and angel seven here, correct? Angel one and angel seven are side by side. That's a chiastic connection. How do I know they're chiastically connected? There has to be verbal correspondence between the two angels. There has to be verbal agreement between the two angels. So let's see if they match. So where angel one and angel seven have word for word similarity or word for word exactness, you'll see those words are in bold prints. Where there's thought for thought similarity, those words are italicized. Okay, so now let's look at angel one and angel seven. 
Angel one, it says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls spoke with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. And he led me away in the spirit into the great wilderness. And this angel speaks of the beast ascending. Now, look at angel seven. Look at the bold print. It's exactly the same as angel one. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls and then spoke with me saying, come, I will show you. And he led me away in the spirit. And then the angel speaks of the holy city descending. So the bold print's exactly the same. The italicized is the same idea. So in angel one, he's showing you the great harlot. Angel seven, he's showing you the bride, the lamb's wife. So they're both showing you women. The first one, a harlot. The second one, the bride of Christ. And you also see in italicized in the first angel, the spirit takes him into the great wilderness. And the seventh angel, the spirit takes him to a high mountain. So they're both going to some earthly location. That's why they're italicized. All right. So because of those similarities, we can say they're chiastically connected, angel one and seven. But if the pattern's going to hold true, that means angel two and angel six need to be chiastically connected. So let's see the similarities between angel two and angel six. First of all, look at the bold print again. After these things, angel two, I saw another angel descending from heaven, having great authority, Fallen Babylon made a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit because all the nations have drunk the wine of her wrath. And you can see the word-for-word -word correspondence in the bold for angel six. You can see the thought-for-thought -thought correspondence in italics. The thought-for-thought, -thought, you have a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit. That relates to having the key of the abyss and a great chain bound, thrown into the abyss and locked in. Um, so there'll be no deception, which is what drunkenness does from the first angel um, type of thing. So two and six are connected. Three and five are connected. Bold print. You both see one angel. One's a great angel. One's a mighty angel. You see a great, uh, something else great, a millstone in, in angel three, a great voice in angel five. Uh, there's something hurled down in both of them. And you see the similarities there as well. Now, the giveaway that these angels are, are, are parallel to each other is their geographical locations. Look at angel one and angel seven. Where are both of those angels? On the earth. You guys see that at the top of the boxes? Where are angel two and angel six? Both of them are between heaven and earth or in mid-heaven. Where's angel three and angel five? Both are in heaven. So they're geographically connected in this chiastic pattern. So there's a lot of things that indicate the pattern. So what's it all pointing to? Well, it's pointing to angel four. Pointing to angel four. And angel four is the angel we're reading about here in Revelation 19, verse 11, when we see the heavens open. They we're being shown the fourth angel of these seven angels. Let's see what this fourth angel shows us here. Back to your Bibles, Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven open. There's our literary cue from John 1. And behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I want you guys to be able to pick up on these symbols in Revelation. All the symbols in Revelation are given to you in the Old Testament. The, the key to open up the symbols of Revelation are found in the Old Testament. 
So who's being referred to when Jesus has a robe dipped in blood? It's showing you that he's a greater who? Who had a robe dipped in blood in the Old Testament? Joseph, right? That was the sign to Jacob that he was dead, that the brothers gave. His robe dipped in blood. So Jesus did not forget about Jacob, he, or Joseph. He's actually wearing a similar robe. He had a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. I hope you see all the reasons why this is Jesus here. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth was a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. We're told in Ephesians that the sharp sword is the Bible. The word of God is our sword. So how does Jesus judge the nations? With nothing less than this word. This is the big I told you so of God, if you don't believe. I told you that I was real type of thing. Uh, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Here's the verse I told you about, Caiaphas connected to the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. There's the bad wine. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, first of all, those who want to say, I'm getting a tattoo because Jesus had a tattoo. He had King of Kings and Lord of Lords tatted on his leg. They didn't even have tattoo parlors back then or the neon signs that go in the windows, okay, or the ink pens or anything. This is on his robe, I believe. On his robe is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And why is it on the thigh of his robe? Because where is he seated? On a white horse. So when you're getting this image, what is eye level with you? His thigh will be eye level with you. A man seated on a horse, his thigh is eye level. So King of Kings and Lord of Lords is blaring right in your eye. And ladies and gentlemen, you just got another Jacob reference. I would love for you to start seeing that the Bible is throwing clues at you all the time to understand these stories. How is this a Jacob reference? Well, when Jacob wrestles with God, God touches his hip, dislocates it, and the Bible says that the Jew would no longer eat the thigh meat of an animal because it represented the weakness of Jacob. So the thigh represented his weakness. Then you go to John chapter 4 and Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. And what is her pressing question? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And notice that Jesus doesn't say, of course I'm greater than Jacob. You have no idea how much greater than Jacob I am. He doesn't go into that. He just lets his life speak for itself. But where do we get the answer that he's greater than Jacob? The Bible says, look at his thigh. The thigh represents the weakness of Jacob. And what does it represent for Jesus Christ? He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He has all power and authority. Look at the thigh. Now, what just happened here? Well, back to our chart. Back to our chart. What just happened with this fourth angel? Well, think of Jacob's ladder. Angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. God was at the top of the ladder. What was the promise to Nathaniel? You'll see greater things than this. And when he says you, will see greater things than this. That word you in the Greek is plural. He says you all, everybody will see greater things than this, not just Nathaniel. And you're seeing it tonight. You're seeing tonight the promise that Jesus made of the greater things than that. So what do we just see? Well, we see angel one on the earth. Then we see angel two in mid-heaven. Then we see angel three in heaven. Then we see Jesus on a white horse. And then we see 
with angel four, then angel five we see in heaven, angel six in mid heaven, angel seven on the earth. These are ascending and descending angels on the son of man in the middle. Did you see it? This is ascending and descending angels on the son of man. This is the ladder. And who's at the very top? It's Jesus Christ. Who's at the top of Jacob's ladder? God. So who is Jesus Christ? He's the God of the ladder of Jacob's dream. Okay, these are the some of the ways we know that Jesus is God. All right. This is so much better with a live audience, I can't tell you. But anyways, uh, either Mike are getting bombarded with questions or people have just quit. I don't know. But we'll find out soon. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you see the power of chiastic patterns. And that will uh, conclude our uh, lesson tonight. And so... Um, it's almost scary for me to say, but I think I'll take your questions now. All right. Please ask them. I want you to understand this chiastic pattern. This chiastic pattern, listen, man cannot write like this. William Shakespeare never wrote like this. Okay, this goes across multiple books of the Bible. I showed you that with the, the water to wine and, and, and Revelation showing that. I showed you that with uh, Jacob's Ladder. And there's many, many, many more of them. If you hear that I teach Christ in the Old Testament course, you'll see all those come to light then. All right, Miguel, I'm ready. Uh, it says everything that you're showing, all this content, including last week lesson one, seem to be clearly irrefutable facts. So how do folks like Richard Dawkins and the so-called Okay, so if you're asking how Richard Dawkins and uh, the New Atheists, which there was four of them, they call themselves the Four Horsemen type of thing. Uh, they're the ones that are bringing atheism to the popular culture. They're uh, the ones making the videos and doing the tours and all that. Christopher Hitchens was a big part of that, but he passed away from cancer a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, what they will do is they won't answer the stuff that I brought up. What they will do is say, uh, they'll bring up things that they believe are contradictions in the New Testament. Things like, one that they'll always bring up is that um, John's gospel speaks of two angels in the tomb. Other gospels speak of one angel at the tomb. You can't have, well, two angels and one angel. Which one is it? That's a contradiction. But the fact of the matter is, John mentions two angels because there were two angels there. Luke and the others mention one angel because all they're doing is giving a quote from that angel. They're simply saying when an angel said. They're not giving you the amount of angels that were there. They're just simply saying an angel said this. So if you were somewhere talking to two people and you just said, and you were talking to Joe and Steve, and you just said Joe said this, it doesn't mean it's only Joe there. Uh, just because you quoted Joe, Steve could be there as well. That's what's going on with that. It's not a contradiction at all. In fact, when COVID hit and CCA closed and I had to teach the kids online, one of them found a cartoon video of a game like Jeopardy with these cartoon figures playing this game of Jeopardy. And it was all about Bible contradictions. And it was an atheist video and they made it very mocking towards the Bible. And the kids asked me if I'd walk them through that entire game show, 30 minutes of nonstop trivia questions, 
showing contradiction after contradiction. There's probably, I would guess, 30 to 40 contradictions they brought up in the game show. And we went one by one and answered every one of them. And the kids were like, how do they get away with this? And I said, guess what, guys? You presented the video as you had no answers for them. It's because most people have no answers and they're, they're vulnerable to believing these atheist videos. So you must do your homework. You must ask your questions. Um, somebody brought up Richard Dawkins and how would he answer the things I said last week and so forth. Well, I would encourage you to um, see, see every time you ask these questions, I think about changing what I was going to do next week to show you this. I have some Richard Dawkins video that I can show you of what he says about things. Uh, for example, um, believe it or not, there's very little talk from, from the new atheists about the Bible itself. The only thing they'll bring up are contradictions um, and so forth, but I've never seen a contradiction in literally 25 years of staring at the Bible and looking for this stuff. I've never seen one that wasn't logically answered, never once. Um, if I did, I'd tell you. And I would say, I still believe it. I just don't know how God would answer this contradiction. But I've never seen an unanswerable contradiction in the Bible. Um, as far as things like the beginning of the universe or the first life and things like that, we're going to cover that in the next six weeks. And um, we are going to cover that. And I will be showing you what Richard Dawkins will say. Now, you know Richard Dawkins as being the most famous atheist in the world. He's a biologist. And therefore, you would think it'd be a Darwinian evolutionist. But I'll... Uh, but Richard Dawkins will not say that he believes in Darwinian evolution. He will publicly say, and he said it on film and on video, that he thinks that maybe aliens seeded life on the earth um, with no evidence to support it. Now, why does he go there instead of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution? Because as a biologist, he knows it's impossible. Did you hear that? As a biologist, Richard Dawkins knows that Darwinian evolution is biologically impossible. And we'll go through some of those impossibilities in the next month and a half. But uh, so he goes to a theory called directed panspermia, which means he believes aliens seeded life on the earth. And, and they would have had to been seeded by an even further advanced civilization, who would have had to been seeded by an even more advanced civilization, and on and on and on it would go. And so what I would love to ask Richard Dawkins, and I was in line to ask him a question at the University of Miami when he spoke publicly, and there was so much nonsense that he said came out of his mouth and so many of the people were applauding him. I got in line behind a microphone to ask him some questions and about five people in front of me, they cut the line off and said, we're ending the line there. So I never got to say anything to him. But um, one of the questions I want to ask him is, based on his theory of directed panspermia, who does he think on planet Earth got the seeds for the next planet. You know, if, if they keep handing seeds down to plant life on these planets, then which one of us has the seeds? And of course I would go and pull out my pockets and go, I don't have the seeds. Do you have the seeds, Richard? It's just so obnoxiously obnoxious that um, I think scientists should say, don't ever say that and call yourself a scientist. The scientists thrive on evidence and he doesn't have any for it. All right, he makes me angry, so I apologize. I'll get happy again and take the next question. Um, all right, here we go. Next question. Um, it says, in the notes that you were referring to earlier today was the PowerPoint presentation. You had a list of uh, 
10 points. Number 10 said the apostles abandoned the long-held Jewish beliefs, animal sacrifice, so on and so forth. Um, and the person is basically asking, can you help me understand where we should keep the Sabbath on Saturday? Why we should keep the Sabbath on Saturday? Uh, the question just says, can you help me understand where we should keep the Sabbath on Saturday? I don't think we should keep the Sabbath on Saturday. I think Paul shows us that um, you're free to worship any day that you want. He says you're not to be judged by a day or a Sabbath or a new moon festival or by any day. Nobody's to judge you for those days anymore. Um, I believe Jesus is the Sabbath fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of our Sabbath rest. That when we're in Jesus, we're in the rest of the Sabbath. Um, so, uh, and I think uh, there's no way to move the apostles in the first century Jewish church off of Saturday Sabbath unless they clearly understood that uh, it was pointing to Jesus and the resurrection, and therefore it was moved to Sunday. Um, I think it's healthy to keep a Sabbath. I think it's healthy to get things out of your life one day a week and focus in on God. I think all of you would agree with that. Um, but to say that there's any righteousness in it anymore is to say that Jesus didn't uh, fulfill everything on the cross, that you still have some work to do. So I don't believe that to be true. Thank you, Pastor Bill. We have another question here that says, um, basically, what version of the Bible, what translation um, do you use, and which ones do you recommend people use versus stay away from? Um, so I use, when I'm studying, studying, I use the New American Standard Bible, NASB, because it's a word for word, and I, I have a Greek New Testament and a Hebrew Old Testament that I do word studies with and so forth, so I need that word for word study. Um, I read devotionally from the New King James because it's a good balance between word for word and thought for thought, and it's more relatable English. So when I'm just reading for my morning devotion and so forth, I read the New King James Version. Um, I, I've just never been a New Living Translation or a Message Bible person. Every time I hear it, um, I feel like I entered puppet land or something like that. I just cannot relate to those translations. Um, but I know people, especially my students, thrive on it, and I would never encourage them off of it. It's just not for me at all. I feel like it's not even, I feel like it's not even the Bible. I don't even recognize, if you read me a paragraph anywhere in the Bible, I'd recognize the book and maybe even the chapter. But Message in New Living Translation, I wouldn't know where it even came from. It's so off the beaten path. I'm not saying it's not accurate. I'm not saying it's not telling you the doctrinal truth. I'm just saying it has a different goal in mind. And the goal is that you just get the idea of the Bible, not the actual words of the Bible. So, um, yeah, so I'll stop there. Thank you, Pastor Bill. We have another question here uh, that just simply asks, uh, do you know what the word chiastic for chiastic pattern means? And are there more than one way to spell it? Is there one uh, first answer is yes, second answer is no. You want me to embellish a little? Sure. Um, 
So the first one was, do I know what it means? I asked it. Yeah, um, chi, C-H-I, is the Greek letter X. And um, many chiastic patterns, um, if, you, if you look at your chiastic pattern, I make them in the form of a pyramid, but many times are made, well, that didn't help. Many times are made in the form of a, a half of an X. The pyramid's turned on its side, and instead of going up and down, it kind of goes uh, like a half of an X. And the, it's named after the design of, of an X, a chi, so it's chiastic, um, or it's called a chiasm. So it's actually named after the Greek letter X, chi, because of its shape. And what was the second question? Do I not, is it spelled differently? No, it's a chiasm, a C-H-I-A-S-M, or the adjective chiastic describing the pattern, C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C. Looks like that's the end of the questions, but we have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask uh, a question that I came across here when studying the book of John. Uh, I am going through a couple different teachers in the book of John, and some of them have mentioned that Nicodemus was potentially uh, the brother of, um, uh, who's the uh, Jewish historian? I'm drawing like Josephus. Do you know, is there any truth behind that? They were both kind of skeptical. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical enough that I, I would never suggest it. Um, to me, um, if he were, uh, it's hard to believe that he himself would never mention it. Um, and you said the brother of? Yes, when I was doing some commentaries, they said that that was a possibility. Yeah, they're, they're 40 to 50 years in age difference, so I wouldn't I wouldn't think brotherhood is likely. Maybe uncle, nephew, or something like that would be more possible, but I don't know for sure. No. Excellent. Um, well, I think that is all as far as the questions go. You're getting a lot of thank yous and a lot of people saying, I'm just taking this in. So uh, we definitely appreciate the study, Pastor Bill. You guys don't have questions on the classic pattern? Can you give me thumbs up or thumbs down if you followed it and saw the beauty of it? Uh, it looks like actually we have a couple hands that just got raised, so I'm going to go to Claudine, if that's okay with you, Pastor Bill. Sure, yeah. Claudine, should we see I think some of them were doing thumbs up or something like that. Yeah. I did get some thumbs up. All right. So maybe yeah. I was mistaken. All right. But, um, okay. Here, uh, the question came in via chat. On the chart that you showed for chiastic patterns, it mentioned seven angels. But angel number four is not mentioned. Christ is in that place. Could you explain the angel? Yeah. Uh, let me go there. Revelation 19. 
it refers back to all of this is the the angel's vision let me see where it actually names the angel here um Yeah, all of this is an angel speaking to him. I'm trying to see where he's actually introduced to us in the story, though. Oh, it looks like it's 1821 is where he enters the picture. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it into the sea. And then that angel carries on for the rest of 18 and all the way through 19. That's the seventh angel. reason for the may sending and descending yes okay so in jacob's dream in genesis 28 uh it was showing that there's a connection between heaven and earth uh and it's in the form of this ladder but that there's um uh, that, that angels have the ability to go between heaven and earth and the old testament is always a shadow of the reality of christ so the shadow is the ladder the reality is jesus jesus said You'll see these angels of God ascending and descending upon me. I'm the ladder. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. That's why we close our prayers to the Father within Jesus' name. He's our connection. He's our ladder. So the angels ascending and descending is simply saying that Jesus mediates for us between heaven and earth. He's that connection point. It's not, it's not the angels. The angels rely on Jesus as well. So um, it's, just, it's just the shadow is of a ladder, of a connection between God and his people. And Jesus is showing on the fulfillment of that ladder, on the connection between God and his people. And so whether it's the role of a priest, which is to represent the people to God going upwards, or it's the role of a prophet who represents God to the people coming downwards, it's a picture of ascending and descending connection, and it all falls on Jesus. Yep. say you go to Revelation 18 uh, what verse did I say it was in uh, 21. yeah that's the introduction of the angel and that angel uh, John what's the password on this because I lost the chart and it needs a password so I can see it 
Are you rolling? My, my uh, chart's on an iPad. That's not mine. And I gotta get the. Ah, got it. Okay. It's 1821. That's correct. Okay, that's what I wanted to see the chart for. Yes. Okay, so let's see. Well, verse 5 of 19 says, A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of, uh, I think that would be the introduction of him there. Um, I would probably prefer to go into one of uh, my commentaries and verify that for you for next week. But yeah, I would say um, I would say that would be the introduction of this of the fourth angel there, unless I see something more clear than that. Um, then he said to me, "Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb." So it's clearly he's being spoken to him by an angel, and I would say that angel is probably uh, introduced. Um, the voice, uh, let's see, that's a multitude. Yeah, verse 5, the voice came from the throne saying, praise God. I think that's going to be what they would point to as his voice there. Okay, so, yeah. um, because verse 9... Because, yeah, I would I would point to the voice that he's hearing in verse, um, what verse did I say it was? Well, yeah, but that's a multitude, but then it gets to a singular voice in verse 5. And then in verse 8, we see that it's singular again because it says, then he said to me, so it goes from a multitude to a singular voice, and that's what I would point to. Okay, thank you very much. You're very welcome.